Well, I hope you have a friend here this morning, and you'll see why that video in just a few minutes. Uh, first of all, did you get a bulletin? Did you get one? On the back of the bulletin, once again, there's some fill-in-the-blanks, very basic things. But once again, for you young ones, if you do it, I have a, a little treat here for you. But if you don't do it, don't take the treat, okay? You with me? Uh, Josiah, do you have one of these? You need one. Get one. If you didn't, if you didn't get one coming in, grab one. And uh, you might follow with us a little better. And read the bulletin because you might miss something like this. Nate, tell us about June 2nd. Uh, June 2nd, we are partnered with M3 Church. We're going to be at Downtown Alliance at the Red Caboose. Does everybody know where the Red Caboose is in Downtown Alliance? Uh, We are planning a great uh, family event. We've put together a lot of different activities for the kids uh, M3's done it for the last two years, and we wanted to get a uh, partnership with them and uh, do it with them this year, so I'm excited. It starts at 4 o'clock, and um, could use a couple of guys, a couple of dads maybe to come down and help us that day as well. You won't have to work the whole time, but maybe you could uh, uh, grab me afterwards and say I'd like to, to help out with it. It'll be a lot of fun, too, so it's not just work the whole time, so... Um, that's what we got going on on June 2nd. June 2nd. and June 2nd. Starts at 4 o'clock. Goes 4 about o'clock. 7. There's going to be music and dunk tanks. I need some dunk tank volunteers. Maybe Phil? We need some vo- <laughs> dunk tank volunteers. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Nate. It's a good thing for us to be involved in. We'll help another church, but also to get into the community and get to know people. You know, if you don't read the bulletin, you might miss something like this. Now and then when I need a chuckle, I sit down and read bulletin bloopers. Anybody else ever do that? Uh, Some of the funniest things you'll ever read are bulletin bloopers. You know, Proverbs uh, says, I think it's 27, says that uh, joy is good for the soul, or uh, a merry heart is good for the soul, depending on what translation you have. So... If you want a little bit of a merry heart, a little bit of joy, read bulletin bloopers. Here's one. The topic of this evening's service is, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir. (laughs) Here's another one. Pastor Smith spoke briefly, much to the delight of those in the audience. Don't count on that this morning. Eight new choir robes are needed due to the addition of new members and to the deterioration of old ones. (laughs) You know, I think I'm going to suggest that James start planting one of these in the bulletin each week. And then if you want to get it, you have to read it, right? Here's another one. Irving Jensen and Becky Carter were married on the 22nd, thus ending a friendship that began in their elementary school days. I hope that's not true. And for the kids among you, listen to this one. Missionary, Bertha Belch will be sharing in the Sunday school hour. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. (laughs) I see some of you nodding. You've heard that before. Doesn't that just conjure up visions in your head of uh, 
listening to Bertha Belch. Well, we are starting today in a series of, for the summer in First uh, Timothy. So if you want to make your way there with me this morning, I've enjoyed the time preparing and reading and thinking through First Timothy again, and I hope that you'll enjoy it as we go through it. I realize how important the book is. There are some things here that are really pertinent for us, where we are. The reason that we went here originally was because we are a church in transition. All of you know that we've had some change recently. Ron left and went to help a church in Hartville, and our young guys are stepping in here. Uh, Our young guys are stepping in here. And... uh, and so we, we are in transition, and I think any th- time you're in transition, it's good to rethink the basics. And so we're rethinking the basics through First Timothy. In a moment, we're going to read uh, 1 through 11. But, you know, as I read First Timothy over and over again, something became apparent to me. And I just kind of titled this series, It's Not About the Building, The Church. It's not about the building. Because you can have a great building and not have a great church. You can have a facility that is absolutely perfect and still not have a church. So the church, it's not about the building. And we'll see as we go along what it is about. And this morning, I thought I'd start in, in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And here's what I believe we see. And this might send some of you into panic. But the church is about right doctrine. It is about right doctrine. Now, doctrine, the word just means teaching. We'll see that in just a moment. And doctrine scares some people to death. You know, when you read 1 Timothy, you you get a sense of the affection that, that Paul had for Timothy. And you get a sense that they had worked together a lot. They were close to each other. And one of the questions that has come up is, when was this book written? And I'm not going to go through all the debates as to when it was written. The authorship has been challenged in recent years. Paul wrote it. I'm satisfied with that. I think the evidence is in. But when was it written? Well, it was a later book, probably around 67, after Paul was released from prison for a time. But... We're not going to debate over when it was written. That's not important. That's not doctrine. That's not what he's talking about. We're not going to sit and talk a lot about where it was, whether it was written in 56 or 67. And there are those who would, would spend some time on that. That's not where we're going. And when I say right doctrine, those aren't the kind of things I'm talking about. I'm talking about the core doctrine of the church. When the core doctrine of the church slips, folks, here's what is diminished. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When core doctrine slips, we forget that we are sinners saved by grace. That is the core doctrine of the church. The core doctrine is that without him, I have no hope of salvation. When I go to bed at night, imperfect though I am, I have to be able to lay my head down on that bed with a sense of well-being. And I have to be able to say to the Lord, and I do all the time, Lord, you are my hope. 
my hope of right standing, my hope of sins forgiven, my hope of eternity rests in you and in no other. And, and that's the beginning of right doctrine. And when right doctrine, right teaching slips, that's the first thing to go. Or maybe the last thing to go, but it goes. And so why is right doctrine important? Because the gospel is dependent on it. And I think as you go through, you'll see some of that this morning. There were people in, in Timothy's life, in the church he was working in, that were teaching wrong doctrine. In just a moment, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to help us before we do. Lord, what we want to believe this morning, what we want to understand is what you've written. We believe that this word is inspired. And God, I don't want to get in the way of it. I want you to speak to us through it. Our heart is to know you better. Our heart is to love you more. And Lord, our heart is to think exactly what you want us to think. Help us to think rightly that we might live rightly. And Lord, I pray to that end. And when it's all said and done, I know, Lord, it is not about a messenger. It's about the message. It's about you. It's about the one who, uh, who wrote that message. The one who communicated to us the love of Christ through your word. God, help us this morning. Help us, Lord, to be alert to it. Help us to uh, overcome the stammering lips of a messenger and that we might get to the heart of this message. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First Timothy 1 through 11. <coughs> Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And just a footnote, uh, when he writes the letter to Titus, he adds our hope of eternal life. And that's the hope he's talking about. Christ Jesus is our hope of eternal life. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you could charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God which is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who are homosexual, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which 
I have been entrusted. And notice that he ties at the beginning this different doctrine. It reminds me of Galatians, the book of Galatians. He says, how soon you moved from the gospel to a different gospel. And then he ties it to the gospel at the end. It's in accordance with the gospel of the glorious God. So sound doctrine is about the gospel. It is about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think you see here that there are some problems. In his greeting, those first two verses, um, it, it's addressed to Timothy, but Paul knew full well that there'd be other people reading it. And so the, the beginning, the greeting is somewhat formal. He says, Paul, an apostle, and if you're following along in those notes, that word is apostle because it becomes an important word. An apostle, and then he's writing to Timothy. He says, an apostle by command of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to go back and recapture something that you probably know out of Matthew chapter 10. When Christ was on earth, he gathered about him disciples. And in Matthew chapter 10, he pulled out a little cluster of those disciples, 12 in number, and he gave them a special task. And read this, and listen carefully for the word apostle in this. Speaking of, uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 10, starting in the first verse, he called him, his 12 disciples, and he called to him, I'm sorry, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority. Now notice this. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of those twelve apostles were Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then look at verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them. So when we speak of apostles, and I always kind of call it the capital A, uh, when we speak of the apostles, we're speaking of those men that Christ physically sent out to establish his church while he was still on earth. And he gave them some instructions, and he gave them some unique power, power that I don't have. He gave them a unique authority that I don't have. And that authority uh, was there to establish the beginnings, the foundation of this new thing that was his church. The, the word apostle means sent one, from a combination of two words, apo, which means from, and uh, stella, which means to send. So it means sent ones. The apostles were very specifically sent ones, capital A, were sent ones from the Lord Jesus. Now, today, we use the word apostle in a general sense, and that's okay. It's okay. Uh, There are people who have have apostolic-type ministries. I believe, personally, that Ron has an apostolic kind of ministry because Ron goes into an area and starts from the beginning and establishes a church beginning from the foundation on up. And I think that was the, the work of the apostles. He didn't have all the same authority that the apostles had, 
But I think he had the same kind of ministry. Does that make sense? So there's a difference in an apostle, the 12, and then those who are sent out later in our generation to do a work of founding Christ's church. So the words used in a general sense, in a specific sense, here he's talking about a very specific sense. Apostle, big A, a sent one, sent by Jesus. And, and you get a sense of this in Acts 1, uh, when, remember, Judas defected, and they were going to re, uh, replace him. And here's what they decided. And Peter spoke, as often he did for the group. He said, here's the criteria for replacing. Acts 1, like in verse 21, he says, he has to be with us, during Christ's ministry. In other words, he had to have seen Christ on this earth. That's the replacement. He has to be with us from the baptism of John. You can look at this in Acts one twenty one. So here's a second criteria that has to be established. He has to be with us from the beginning. He has to have seen Christ's ministry, in other words. And he has to have seen the baptism of John. And then thirdly, he has to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. So... These, these were baseline things to establish who could be an apostle and who could replace Judas in the Twelve. Um, they picked a guy who we know nothing about. It's interesting whether there was debate over whether it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do to pick that replacement in, in Acts one twenty one. Not going there. But uh, nonetheless, they picked one and he met those. But now Paul is calling himself an apostle. Why? Did he meet those? Did, did Paul meet those criteria? We don't know for sure. Did, did Paul uh, know Christ while he was on earth? Maybe. Maybe. We're, he would have known of him for sure. But did he know him? We don't know for sure. There's no evidence we can't find anything that says he did. I'm inclined to think he did. Uh, a small country, and I'm sure that he knew him. Um, did, did Paul accompany them from the baptism of John when Christ was baptized by John? Yeah, we don't know that, but I suspect he knew about it. And then, was he a witness to Christ's resurrection? Well, he was, but in a unique way, wasn't he? Remember on the road to Damascus when he has that encounter with the Lord? And he met the Lord Jesus in a really unique way there. And he was stricken by the Lord. Paul identified himself as an apostle. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, listen to what he says. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor from man, but through Christ Jesus and God the Father. Paul knew that he'd been established as an apostle. He identified with that. He also said uh, in, in, First Galatians 9, in 1 Corinthians 9.1, there is no 1 Galatians, incidentally, 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And so the answer is yes. Paul was an apostle by special appointment. And you find out that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles that he had a specific ministry. He took the gospel and planted churches among the Gentiles. Let's look at that second section in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, why would I put that in there? 
because Timothy obviously wasn't uh, Paul's son. He wasn't a physical son. And there was some sense in which Paul identified with Timothy. Uh, He had an identity that was close. He loved him dearly, and you see that in the letter. And he calls him his son in the faith. You know, Timothy's mom and grandmother were really important. We learned this in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Eunice and Lois were really important to him. They taught him. They nurtured him. But when Paul came along, he, Timothy lived at Lystra. Uh, from all appearances, that's where he was from. And when, when Paul came along, came into Lystra, Timothy heard the gospel clearly for the first time and came to faith in Christ. So he was a spiritual son of Paul. You know, we have friends down in Kentucky. And I remember sitting with Don Gallagher, who I trust will visit us someday, and just sharing the Lord Jesus with him. And Don was a guy who had been prepared. You, you have to know Don, serious-minded man who had uh, lots of interest. He was a Kentucky colonel. You know a Kentucky colonel? I do. That was an honorary kind of a title that was given to people for various things. He was a, a baseball coach. He coached through Little League, and because of his recognition and coaching, he was a Kentucky colonel. So at any rate, I was talking with John and uh, or Don, and Don and Norma had been starting to come to the church a little bit, Norma more than Don. And then one day we got serious in our conversation, and he confessed Christ as Savior. The next Sunday he came down and wanted to publicly profess that faith. And soon, Don was baptized. And I see him over the years. That's been years ago. And I see him over the years. And one of the last times I saw him, Don said something that was, that was very humbling, but it also took me back to a different time. He said, you know, you are my father in the faith. And uh, I've never had anybody say that to me before. There are other people that I've introduced to Christ, but he's the only one that ever said that. And it just took me back. But it also spoke of a relationship. Don and I have a unique relationship. We can sit down after not seeing each other for two years and have a conversation that's just like we were together yesterday. You have people like that in your life? Because there's a heart kinship that we have that is just unique. And he's a special person to me. I think that's exactly the kind of relationship Paul's describing here. It's a relationship of someone that he knew in the faith, someone he'd introduced to Christ. And when you read uh, Paul's writings, it's amazing how many times Timothy's name comes up. Timothy is with him when he wrote Ephesians. I believe Timothy was with him when he wrote Philippians. Timothy saw him in jail. Timothy probably saw him stoned at Lystra. And left for dead. You know, he knew this guy. And their lives were intertwined. And there was a heart friendship that is unequaled by anything on earth. There's nothing like it in that kind of a relationship. And I would say to you, if you don't have one of those, uh, you're being cheated. You need relationships like that of people who are just because of Christ, whose lives are intertwined with yours. Well, that's the kind of relationship, I believe, that Paul had with Timothy. 
Timothy was one of Paul's, the apostles' closest friends. They were close. And you see that. When you see later in this book, chapter 5, he says, Timothy, here's something you need to do for your sicknesses. You have stomach problems. And so take, take a little of this, take a little wine for your oft infirmities. Don't drink water only. Take a little of this to help you with your stomach issues. And, you know, you look at some of the descriptions that you see of Timothy. He apparently was timid because time and again, Paul has encouraged him to boldness. He apparently had some health issues. Maybe he was a little bit frail. He was young, uh, although by this time he probably was in his early 30s, but he's still young. So Timothy had some things that were limitations about him. And Paul, all the time, is constantly moving Timothy to the forefront, pushing Timothy into ministry. Uh, Timothy was himself in jail from Hebrews 13, we know that. But I think he may have been, and you guys can correct me with further study, but he may have been Paul's closest companion on his journeys. If not, he was certainly one of a couple. Barnabas early, but then later, I think Timothy was the guy who was with him all the time. But Timothy was not a wimp. When I read about Timothy, I kind of can identify with him. Being a little timid, being a little this, a little that, I can kind of identify with Timothy. I don't identify with Paul at all. Do you? Paul, to me, is like 10 feet tall and bulletproof. You know, I just, I don't identify with Paul. He was too strong. He had too much power. And he, he seemed to have such a drive. And, and I, I just can't get to Paul. But I can get to Timothy. You know, I understand Timothy a little better. I feel like, okay, finally somebody that I can identify with. Um, not so much, Paul. But he wasn't a wimp. He knew the cost of discipleship, but he'd caught the vision. He had the heart of the apostle. Now, verses 3 through 11. Let's go through this and uh, think it through a little bit. The church is about right doctrine. And as we read it, I hope you saw that. There were problems. Paul left Timothy in the church at Ephesus. And uh, there were all kinds of problems in the church at Ephesus. There were external problems, external threats to the church with an ungodly culture. Does that sound familiar at all? We don't have any of that, do we? Of ungodly culture outside the church. There were internal threats which were really more dangerous because right in the church there were people who were teaching wrong doctrine. He's going to mention two of them a little later. And these two men were part of the church teaching team. They were public and in their presentation of wrong doctrine. And Paul says, no. He, in fact, he disciplines them. And he makes them step out of that leadership role. And again, we'll see that actually next week. But so they're internal threats and they're external threats. And some leaders in the church at Ephesus were teaching wrong doctrine. I write that down because we don't like that word. How many of you don't like the word doctrine? How many does it bother you? Oh, nobody. Now you're just afraid to put your hand up. Come on. Okay, you don't like the word doctrine. Thank you, Josh. He just did that to humor me. Um, the word doctrine is a great word. 
it just means teaching. It means our body of faith. It means what we believe is our teaching. And so it's a good word. There's nothing wrong with the word. Uh, Galatians 1.6 has a similar phrase. They turn to a different gospel, he says. And it was a gospel that was about rules. The word doctrine doesn't just mean teaching. But notice as you look at verse 5, this is something we forget. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. And so the aim of correct doctrine, I think, according to this section, is love. It's love that comes out of a pure heart. Now, why did he say that? Let's think about that for a second. Could a person ever come into a church and begin to teach with selfish motives? Could that ever, ever happen? Could it? Yeah. And what might those selfish motives be? Well, maybe, just maybe, they want to gain a following for themselves, right? And maybe, just maybe, they want to be noticed. They want to be on a higher plateau. And so they come in, and a little bit later he talks about their confident assertions uh, down at verse 7. They come in with great confidence and sometimes great speakers, and they speak wrong doctrine. But it's not coming from a pure heart. It's coming from a heart that's much more concerned about themselves. And you know, for the guys who are in this pulpit, this is not about us. And I have to keep reminding myself that. I don't really like looking like a fool. You know, I really don't. And I don't like looking inadequate. And I don't like looking unprepared, but really, it's not about me. It's about the message. It's about the teaching. It's, it's really all about Jesus. That's what it's about. And so the messenger is a messenger, at very best, folks. The messenger is no more than a messenger. He can't be any more than that. That's the best he can be. And boy, do we need to keep reminding ourselves of that, that we're messengers. Nothing more. And the attention, the affection goes to the Lord Jesus. But notice that uh, these false teachers were misusing the law of Moses, verse 7. They were teaching really, and let me give you a summary of that without having to, to wade through all of it. They were making the gospel man-centered instead of God-centered. The gospel is God-centered. The gospel is about grace. The gospel is about mercy. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Christ dying for my sins. That's what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about me doing anything to present myself acceptable to God. That's not the gospel. And when I let the law creep in... When I let rules creep in to the gospel, pretty soon it becomes about who? It becomes about me. And, and that was the problem they had. That's always the problem. It's amazing. You say, well, that's so simple. Well, it's so simple, but why do we get it all messed up? Let, let me give you a, a terrible illustration, but I'll use it anyhow. I don't have a tie and jacket on. Do you notice? 
I have casual pants and a summer shirt. There, there are many, t- and there are some good churches. Don't misread what I'm about to say. Maybe it's a bad illustration, but there are many churches that if I walked into the pulpit this way, they'd escort me out of the pulpit. Now, some of it's just tradition, but other times they've made my attire a rule. And that rule is so important to them that they couldn't listen to what I have to say. I think there's something wrong in that. But men can get messed up in that kind of stuff. Um, You know, we were in a church one time. If you can imagine this, heresy of heresies. We were in a Grace Brethren church, and I love the Grace Brethren. And you know how they baptize crazy guys? They baptize three times face forward in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And you think you nearly drowned somebody by that third time. But, but that isn't right, is it? Obviously, folks, I'm kidding. Is that an acceptable mode of baptism? Absolutely, positively, yes. It's an acceptable mode of baptism. Do you hear that? So don't take it to your grace, brethren, friends. It's an acceptable mode. Here's what they would say. They would say that when Christ died on the cross, his head dropped forward. And so we believe to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it is best to uh, baptize face forward. Now, they may have some other reasons. That's primary. Then they would say that we acknowledge the three persons of the Trinity in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're acknowledging the three persons of the Trinity in that. And here's what I always said to them, that I never had any problem. I baptized that way because I was in their church, and I was okay with that. But here's what I always said. I believe when they laid Jesus in the grave, he probably would have been on his back. I've never seen anybody buried any other way. Have you? And I believe that in the Trinity, there's one person. There's unity in the Trinity. Yes, I believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in each of them as, as entities within the Trinity. But I believe there is one God. And so I baptized one time backwards, signifying uh, his death and the unity of God. Okay, which one's right? Does it matter? Does it matter? I don't believe so. You may fight with me over that later if you like, but I don't believe it matters. It's not that important. And so we're not going to split hairs over those kinds of things. It's not that important. But we are going to split hairs about this. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Jesus Christ came to this world to save those who needed saved. That's me and that's you. And we're not arbitrating that truth. That's the centrality of the doctrine. And it's a work that only God can do. Right? We can't do it. And we're not going to negotiate that away. And, and I think that was what was happening. It was creeping into that church that they were teaching a wrong doctrine about the law of Moses. You know, it's interesting to me that Paul saw this coming. Let me once again go back to an earlier section out of the book of Acts. I'm going to read just a couple verses out of Acts chapter 20. 
In Acts 20, um, Paul, in verse 17, if you're following with me, from Miletus, uh, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. And then he describes that, that he didn't shrink back, he says in verse 20, from declaring anything that was profitable. And he taught him in public and house to house. Paul taught the gospel from a pure heart. I believe that. But then keep looking down to verse 28. I'm in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he's saying to the elders of the church, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Interesting, he calls the elders overseers. Uh, Same people. To care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you hear that? So from among your own selves, right in your midst, people are going to rise up. And they're going to seek to draw the disciples after who? Themselves. They're trying to create their own little cliques. And so Paul saw this coming in Ephesus. Um, He knew what was about to happen. So he left Timothy there. And he left them because they were teaching wrong doctrine. He said that they were misusing the law in verse 7. Now let's just think about that for a second. What's the purpose of the law? What's the law to do? Well, he says in verse 8, We know that the law is good. You know, the law is a perfect standard. It's a right standard. Nothing wrong with the law at all. The problem is there's something wrong with us. It's not the law. So he says it's good if one uses it lawfully. Well, how does a person use the law lawfully? Did the law and keeping of the law ever save anyone? Look at Romans chapter 3. Look at Galatians. The way that the law is rightly used is as our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's the one who teaches us who we really are. You know, Christ expanded on the law. And he said, the law says don't murder. I say to you, don't be angry. All of you who have never been angry at anyone, raise your hand. We have any liars here? (laughs) Okay. All right, let's be a little more personal. I won't ask any raising of hands of this. But he said that the law says don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't look after a woman to lust after her. Um, And I won't ask the guys to raise their hand. Because can we keep the law? Can we keep the law? No. The law was to show us ourselves. That was the best the law could do. That was using it rightly and lawfully. It's to show us our own hearts. It's to show us how far we were from God. That's why the law was given. And so he goes on and talks about these people who are against the law, who are acting unlawfully. And he says the purpose of that law is to show them who they were. That's why the law was given. And now these teachers come along. And they're using the law unlawfully. 
And again, I say the law takes the focus from God to man if you try to keep it. Well, let's think for a few minutes about what we should do with this. How do we live this out? The, the first thing that I think is really important is that we need to know our faith well enough, understand what we believe well enough that we can spot a different doctrine. Paul tells us that in Second Timothy. But you know that's true. I am told um, that bank tellers are taught what to look for in the genuine bill so that they can spot a counterfeit. They don't start with the counterfeits and work to the genuine. They start with the genuine and work to the counterfeit. And I think that's the way we are in our doctrine. We need to understand what we believe. We need to understand that he became sin for me, who knew no sin, that I could be made the righteousness of God in him. We need to understand that, kind of what's, what's taught there. And that needs to be the anchor of our faith. And then when a counterfeit comes along, you can see it. That makes sense? You can see it. You know, that's not right. That's not what the gospel teaches. No, that's not what the Lord would have us believe. And, and then I think there's some patterns for leadership and for the local church today. And Ron and I have been friends for a number of years. And one of the reasons we're friends is because we see this exactly the same way. We see it. We totally agree. And I think all of our elders agree, too. That the first thing I see is that Paul was encouraging young Timothy. Timothy, a little timid, a little unsure, maybe not totally confident in his abilities and so forth. Paul's constantly encouraging him and saying, go get him. Be faithful. Be faithful to what you know. Uh, and next week we're going to see more of that. But be faithful to what you know. Go get them. And I think that's what we should be doing, should we? is encouraging our young people. I believe that the greatest joy that a teacher could have is for the disciple to rise above the teacher. And when you set the bar low enough, that's easy, you know. But it's for those who come in after, who, who have been discipled and raised up, it's for them to rise to higher levels than the teacher. I just think that's great. That's as it should be, folks. And that's what we are looking for. You know, we have some young guys here that are going to be much, much better in the pulpit than the old guys. And so, should I be jealous? No, I don't think so. I'm going to sit back and thoroughly enjoy it. That's what I'm going to do. And that's the way it should be. And I, I see that here. I see that Paul's trying to nurture this guy. In some ways, Timothy went beyond what Paul could do. He reached out beyond what Paul could do. The church today ha cannot lose the vision of that, of, of raising up young leaders. You know, I'm really concerned when people are so jealous for the pulpit. Oh, this is accusatory maybe in a little way. But I'm, I'm really concerned that, that we have to have maybe the very best every Sunday, best presenter, and then we do not allow others and young people to come into the pulpit. I think we're making a mistake there. I'm not saying that the teaching should be inaccurate. I don't mean that. 
But sometimes the teaching is totally accurate, but the people just haven't done it enough. And how are they going to do it enough if they're not here? And so we've got to allow young people to come into the scene. I think the same thing's true in music, in leading worship, and I think it's true in the pulpit. Yes, we want to be sure that the message is the message of Christ, not wrong doctrine. But we also want to be sure that young people are afforded the opportunity. And I, I think Timothy had proven himself, and Paul said, go, do the job. Then there's a third thing. I think this is, this is important, too. Maybe it's a fourth thing. Some people are just great communicators. You ever been around one? Just a dynamic communicator. And they can come in by the strength of their presentation. They can convince you that they're right. Just on the basis of their presentation. I've seen people like this. Been around them. And pretty soon you get so absorbed in their ability to present and their talking that you don't listen to what they're saying. And when I said there in the applications, people who, who appear to be elite intellectuals, sometimes people are profoundly wrong. They're profound, all right. They're just profoundly wrong. And I think we need to be alert for that, for false teachers. Uh, are we immune to that? Not in any way. In fact, we're every bit as susceptible to that as the church at Ephesus was. Maybe more. Maybe more so. We need to be on alert for that. When somebody comes in with a startling new revelation, something nobody's seen before in 2,000 years, history of the church, you better get really nervous, folks. Better be nervous. Because I don't believe there are any new revelations. You can kind of see things in a different light, and God can help you to see things. But, but the doctrine of Christ's church has been established And I don't believe you're going to find this brand new revelation that nobody's seen in 2,000 years. It just isn't going to happen. And so we need to be on alert for that. Be careful. And then, just in in capping today, I would say this. That without shame, uh, without reservation, we would say that the message we protect... Now listen to what I'm saying. The message we're protecting this morning is the only hope for mankind. And that's why we have to protect it. That's why it's so precious. It is the only hope for mankind. There is no other hope. Jesus said, I am the way. Not a way. There aren't many. There's one. That's, that's unpopular today. There's one way, and it's Jesus. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life And though a man die, yet shall he live. Uh, No one else can say that. And listen, we've got to protect that gospel because without it, mankind's hope is gone. You understand what I'm saying there? That's, That's important for us, folks, to engage in protecting that gospel. And, and that's, I think, the, the message that Paul gave Timothy. And that's the message he'd have us take away today. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, words are cheap. I know that. And there are times where it'd just be easier to agree and to nod our heads
but we want to stand firm. Lord, we want to know what things to fight over, what things we'd say are worthy of warfare, and what things aren't. God, help us to be discerning. God, help us to protect the blessed gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who's never come to faith in Christ, who after listening to this says, I, I just don't know that gospel, I don't know him, God, would you move upon their hearts as you alone can? This is not about us, it's about you. And would you move upon them, help them, Lord, at, at this day, at this time, that they'd be able to say with confidence, yes, yes, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, I know him. I understand what he did for me and that they can give you thanks for it. Lord, it would be such a good day if someone would, would come this morning and say, that's my heart. And then, Lord, for the rest of us, I, I pray that the things that we've heard this morning, even with maybe the things that were skipped and not said, uh, and the things that weren't said well, Lord, would you overcome all of that and would you impress upon us the import of why we're here as a church of Jesus Christ and what our job is. God, would you impress that on us? And Lord, we love you this morning. We love you because you first loved us, but we love you because you demonstrated love on a cross. Lord, you've shown us what it means to love mankind through Jesus. Thank you for that. We worship you. We give you thanks. In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, amen.